Amen. This is awesome. Thank you, Brooke. And uh, James, this is super fun. Like, we get to tag team. We've been working together for almost nine years now, and this is our first time they've let us do this together. Yeah. James, you're the only one that clapped. <laughs> I love it. And, and uh, if you ever don't like anything I say, just come and try to wrestle, wrestle this mic away from me, and it'll be, it'll be pretty fun. So uh, we're going to bring to conclusion today the Jonah series, and uh, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can go to Jonah chapter 3, um, this ancient scroll, and uh, now uh, we've turned it into pages you can turn, or an electronic device that you can easily find Jonah. If not, there's a table of contents, Jonah chapter 3. And we have just felt like the Holy Spirit wants to cultivate inside each one of us uh, more compassion for each other, for our community, for the world. Uh, so we've been talking about building passion for compassion. And the word, the word passion, it, it, it's, it's less about the head and it's more about the heart. In fact, it's even, it's even more about our guts. It's just, it's way down there. And so, yeah, we'll be touching on some things that'll influence your head today. But I just want to warn you, Right now might be a good time to let down your guard and begin to open up your more emotional, your guts, to what God might be doing in our community and also in your life, in your heart. And that's why we chose the story of Jonah. It's just a compelling story. I want to, at least for my part, I want to just... Walk us through the story, because I don't have to say that much. The story is compelling in and of itself. And then um, I'm going to bring James up, and uh, James is going to take the baton and help us untangle some of the confusing parts of chapter 4. And then in our 4 by 4 relay, uh, we're going to bring up a couple amazing people who are professional therapists, and we'll really like, open you up. So buckle your seatbelts and uh, get ready. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. Follow along. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, we could summarize uh, the book of Jonah so far with this. Jonah ran, Jonah was swallowed, and Jonah was vomited. I mean, there's, there's the book of Jonah in summary so far. And Todd left us last week with Jonah being puked out onto a beach. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you grateful that God is a God of second chances? I am. And in my case, it's third chances and fourth chances and beyond. And so, you know, no matter where you're at today, your journey, I mean, we come and sit in these neat and tidy rows, but inside each of us is a journey. It's a story. And God is so relentlessly in love with you, full of compassion for you, that he will give you a second chance, a third chance, even this morning. And God said to Jonah, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Just receive Lamentations chapter 3 this morning. Because of the Lord's great love, 
we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's a word for you and for me this morning. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. He didn't want to, but he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming the message that God had given him. And this is what it was. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a dire warning, except... The Hebrew word behind this English translation of overthrown, it can go one of two ways. One, it can mean Nineveh will be turned over, turned upside down. That means destroyed. I mean, you know, fire and brimstone, Nineveh laid waste, wiped out. But there's another meaning for this word overthrown, and that is Nineveh will turn around. And that's the idea of repentance. And forgiveness. So there's good news. The gospel actually is right here in Jonah's incredibly short sermon. It's just five words in the Hebrew, which is a lot shorter than any of our teachers up here have ever gone. And I'm going to go this morning. Somehow he had power and authority. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And that that word believed is the exact same word that was used about Abraham. Now, think about this. We're talking about the Ninevites. And we think about what happened with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, where it says, and Abraham believed God. Same word. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, we we build the whole narrative of Scripture. The journey takes its path from Abraham's faith in the New Testament. It, it, It highlights this belief. Something miraculous, something powerful, something so surprising happened in Nineveh at Jonah's proclamation. They believed God. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Really the opposite of what Jonah ever did. Jonah just got up and ran. The king got up and got on the ground in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And in a moment, James is going to give you a little window into the evil ways and the violence of the Ninevites because it was great. It was evil. And notice what he says in verse 9, the king of Nineveh. Who knows? That's a powerful question that many people are asking. What what does this life mean? What what is going on in our world? And that, that question, who knows? I mean, who really has an answer 
But, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving my heart's longing in this question as he cries out, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. There's a lot of people in our community that are wondering about the character of God. What kind of a God is out there? And oftentimes, they get their insight, their, their understanding of what God is like by rubbing shoulders with Jesus' followers. And oh, our prayer is that we would, we would grow in the same kind of compassion that God has. That that aroma of God's character would just permeate our community and relationships so that people might get a more accurate picture of what God is like. In verse 10, here it is. Here's the clincher. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. He changed his mind. His compassion led to forgiveness of the Ninevites. And I'll tell you what, I think we'd be happy if the story ended there. You know, it's kind of like, it's, it's nice to have a story with a delightful ending that just like, oh, that's so cool. You know, the good news was preached and they relented, they repented. Everyone went home happy, all's forgiven. It's so good. Ah, okay. And Jonah in chapter 3. Jonah ran. Jonah was swallowed. Jonah was vomited. Jonah obeyed. And the Ninevites repented. It's all good. We win in the end. It's super good. But as Brooke taught us several weeks ago, this is not necessarily a story about Jonah. This really is a story about God. It's a, it's a narrative that's intended to help us expand our minds but open up our guts to, oh my goodness, he really has that much compassion? We're building passion for compassion. And you remember, uh, Jesus, oh, bless you, really. Yeah, yeah. And not just because you sneezed, but just bless you, Dave. May God's hand of blessing be on, yeah, yeah. Kathleen, could you take it outside, please? Um, Jesus saw, uh, he saw the crowds, remember? And when they were sneezing, he had <laughs> compassion. He felt it in his gut. In the deepest part of him, Jesus felt compassion for people. But let's keep reading. Because the story doesn't end in chapter 3. It ends in chapter 4. And by the way, it ends with a question mark. The story of Jonah ends with a question mark. Which I think really turns the whole question to us. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But Jonah... To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Didn't I already tell you this? I am so mad. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, and listen to what, listen to what Jonah says, because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending 
calamity. Joseph had his theology correct, but his guts were in a different place. Verse 3, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What What is going on inside Jonah? I mean, this is confusing to me. This is complicated. The story has taken a a, a turn that requires some some understanding. It's as if Jonah is saying, God, I love your compassion when it's for me. But you know what? I don't really like it when it's for them. What does it take for a person to be so mad at God that the alternative that seems best to them, let me die. Well, in this relay, James has been thinking that through, and we have some friends that are going to help us a bit. So, uh, James, what, what's going on with Jonah? Yes? Yes. Okay, good. Man, but could you grab that chair, too, over there and just swing it? Bill's on it. Look at him. I'm just going to put this over here. Um, I... I think I love that you pointed out uh, precisely what Brooke had mentioned two weeks ago in the sermon about the protagonist of this story is God. The character of Jonah, we're watching it through the eyes of Jonah. We are identifying as readers. He's kind of a stand-in for Israel, stand-in for all of us. But really the whole scroll, which is short and sweet and really interesting, uh, and it's also the easiest Hebrew in the whole Old Testament. So if you're taking Old Testament Hebrew or ancient Hebrew, your midterm or final is almost always out of Jonah because it's just really simple, clean, and it's very, very well written. Um, and there's this uh, vision that is trying to convey to us about God, giving us something about God, and then inviting us to wrestle along with Jonah with our own presuppositions and our own bitterness and our own things, our own stuff. Um, there's this Hebrew word, gadol. Everyone say gadol. Gadol. Really get in there with it. Enjoy it. Relish it. The, the, uh, the term means great, big, massive, giant, gadol. And it comes again and again in the story. So like the fish that swallows uh, Jonah is the dog gadol. Right? It's the, it's, isn't that a fun word for fish, by the way? Hebrew word for fish is dog. It's like you're from Boston talking about a dog. Yeah, dog over there. It's a dog gadol. I'm going to do the rest of the sermon in a Bostonian accent. And um, the city, it's a ha'ir gadol. It's a big, great city, the great city of Nineveh. And then we move into Jonah 4, 1. And Jonah is displeased, is angry with a ra'ah gadol or gadola, with a giant anger. He's so mad that he wishes he were dead. And we're like, some of us might read that and go, well, come on, Jonah, you're kind of a jerk. You're angry that a bunch of people have been spared? Um, I want to introduce to you, because this scroll is a scroll of extremes. I mean, it's almost hyperbolic that when you think about the worst people in the ancient Near Eastern world, who are the worst possible human beings in the known world of the scriptures? It would be the Assyrians, which is Nineveh's their capital. And Amanda, did I send you those slides? Okay, they went through. Excellent. So I want to show you just a couple. These are going to, a series of slides I'll have you click through. These are how Assyria 
wanted to be perceived. This isn't like weird graffiti from the margins, messed up margins of Assyrian society, or like the secret dark diary of a twisted monarch. These are like giant physical projects. These are giant monumental forms of architecture wherein Nineveh or, or Assyria was saying, hey, world, this is how we want you to see us. This is the Instagram filter we're using for you to read who we are. And I'm going to show you a few slides. So here's just them setting up siege works. You'll notice some individuals impaled on poles. Okay, next slide. This is going to be really encouraging if any of you are thinking about Christmas card ideas. Um, so here's an individual uh, suffering at the hands of uh, the Assyrians, a, a conquered king. And you can notice he's having a very bad day. Um, being just and some heads are adorning the side. Uh, next slide. Um, here's some impalements. If you ever wondered, what's an impalement? Well, there's an impalement right there. Okay, so and these are set up. So this this architecture, by the way, much of it would be actually wrapped in the skins of conquered soldiers and and dignitaries. I'm, so in my scholarship, I focus on. Um, I've, I teach a class called. Roman power, Christian humility, and violence as entertainment. All right, that's a fun one. And one of my colleagues, Charlie Trim, Dr. Trim, he's an Old Testament scholar. He teaches a course called Divine Violence. And we always joke, like, if you take both of our classes, we put you on a watch list, like, immediately. So, <laughs> so that's why it's kind of in my wheelhouse to talk about really terrible things like this. But this is, this is impalement. Next slide. This is two individuals being flipped. are in, indeed being pro, put out there for the ancient world to see. The Assyrians were like the best of the best. So Assyria versus Israel, Jonah's hometown, would be like the U.S. versus New Zealand. I mean, we like New Zealand. It has sheep, Lord of the Rings, Flight of the Concords had a little run there for a while in the mid-2000s. That's about it, though. You don't think of them as a superpower militarily or economically. Like, that's Israel. Assyria would be like the U.S. or China, some massive mega empire. Um, I'm going to read you a couple. Is there more? I think I, I just really went all for it. My browser history is just really weird right now. Is that it? Okay. Um, oh, there's some more. There's always more. Uh, I think maybe there's one more. Let's see. There's some impalements. There's, uh, there's a, okay, throat cutting, keep going. And, oh, there we go. That's my favorite right there, all the heads. So I'm going to read you the, just a couple. Um, this is from a great guy, Ashir Nisar Paul II, ninth century uh, monarch in Assyria. I filleted as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected up in stakes on the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Um, another one, I cut off heads of their fighters. I built there with a tower before their city, and I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Again, this isn't a journal. These are monumental inscriptions. Like when you go into a government building and there's something written across the top, that's what we're talking about here. This is how the Assyrians rolled. Last quote. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms, some of their hands, others their noses, some of their ears, and others' extremities, which is a euphemism for something else. 
I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. So it's kind of like a nightmare before Christmas vibe, right? Like sort of decorating the city with these severed heads. I'm showing you this because I didn't just pick the most gnarly things I could find about them. This really is part of their self-presentation and part of who these people are. So when you think about Jonah in this story, the size of God's compassion and love and mercy is really what is the headline. And this is what Jonah is so angry about. God, I understand you forgiving me, maybe Israelites, maybe some of those goofy Canaanites, but these people are unforgivable and I'd rather die than see them saved. I'd rather die than see them protected. He's so angry and quite frankly, I think if we understand the Assyrians even more, you would be as well. You'd be indignant at this, this massive size of God's forgiveness. And, and um, as we think about the story of Jonah, and we've been reflecting on it, we could have an application or a discussion about uh, forgiveness that's on like the socio-cultural, political um, tier of conversation. We could talk about global pain, obvious, obvious nightmare situations going on in our world today in Ukraine and Israel and elsewhere. And those are important places where I think a lot of this would apply as we think about it, not just economically or morally, but also theologically. Like what does, what happens when our God meets the evils of this world and what does it look like? But uh, for most of us living here in the South Bay, 21st century on this edge of the world, the land of milk and honey, as I call the South Bay, great spot. Um, for those of us that are privileged to be here, the question of forgiveness, which is really what is at the heart of this whole scroll, I want to take it right close to home. I want to go like right where you live right now. And the, the truth is there are little forgivenesses that we have, like little bits of like, I should forgive that person. I need to forgive that person. They, they um, slighted me. Or you're getting a, a tiff with someone and you, hey, I forgive you. We're all good. But then there are those Forgiveness gadols, those like great forgivenesses, the big ones. And you know what they are if you've had them in your life or if you have them hanging in your life right now, haunting your past or your present. There are some people that have hurt you, that have done things to you you didn't deserve, that have wronged you, betrayed you, turned their back on you when you were vulnerable. There are places, like there are Many, many folks have suffered church hurt or hurt from another community, and it's really deep, and it's really severe. And even peeking at this forgiveness, like, no, nah, not going there. That's too much. I'm going to just spray some Old Spice high endurance over it and hope it goes away. And today, what, what I want to do is talk about, like, theologically speaking, this scroll of Jonah, which I've printed out here. The scroll of Jonah takes the unforgiveness club out of your hands. Theologically, you cannot marry God to your grudge and say, God shares my grudge too. We share the same hatred and God sees that person and God smites that person as much as I want to. This messes with it. It really does. It messes that whole thing up. And some of you, for me, sometimes that's frustrating. Darn it, Jonah, why are you in there? Because it reminds us there's no longer a theological club we can use. And 
it then brings to us closer and closer this thing of forgiveness. And I wanted to bring up a couple people. And so, first of all, uh, Anita Sayers and Chris Ioma, would you come up here? Can we give a hand? If some of you know these, some of you know these people, um, and just grab a seat on one of these um, stools up here. I'm just going to get a little comfortable. And uh, so, Anita and Chris, um, they're both incredible marriage and family therapists, and, and um, is that, would that a good way to characterize what you do? Yeah, yeah. and so they're professionals. Um, they've done this for, for uh, many, many years and, and are excellent. Chris is my best friend, so I get free therapy all the time, and I can't really see him as a therapist. Here's for free, ther- free therapy, and this really is my excuse to get a free group therapy session in for all of us. So, um, so we're grateful for the work you do, but I really wanted to get practical and, um, and, I, and as Bill mentioned at the beginning of the service, I invite you to, it's just scary, but like no, you don't have to write anything down or raise your hand or do anything, but if you're courageous enough to let your guard down a little bit in your heart, no one has to see it, but just for a minute and go, all right, I'm open for a minute. I would encourage you to do that. And I want to talk about, um, I have a couple questions for y'all and I want you just to riff on it. And we have some time, we're good. The first question I have is about this thing of forgiveness in general, and that is the importance of forgiveness. Like, Jesus talks about it all over the place, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 18. His whole life was a picture of forgiveness. It's a giant thing. Why is it important in our real lives today, right now, as individuals and families? Oh, I'll start with kind of my um, experience of forgiveness growing up, especially with this story. I really appreciate all you guys because it's my first time really understanding this from the perspective of it's a story about God, not about I need to be more like Jonah and stop being selfish and go do what I'm supposed to go do, which tells you a little bit about me. Um, <laughs> but this understanding of forgiveness is not this immediate mandatory action. You're not hurt and then forgive seven times, 77, turn the other cheek. That was the message I heard, and it's a good message. But if we're not first appreciating more about what's going on, that forgiveness isn't really healing for me or the other person. So if we think more about forgiveness as a spiritual discipline, something that is hard to do, something we have to wrestle with, right? Holding on to a grudge is actually a safety mechanism. If I hold on to my grudges, if I hold on to what's hurt me, I'm not going to be vulnerable and in danger again. So there's like this protective mechanism about it. And we're trying to learn how to release that and lean into that more as a discipline than a required immediate action because we're all good Christians. Beautiful. And something that I'm not sure we often think about is unforgiveness is bondage. And that's kind of a strong word, but I think it's apropos here. Um, What happens uh, when we're in a state of unforgiveness? It often feels very justified. And so the idea of being in bondage to something that's harmful to us doesn't really register a lot of the time. But what's really actually happening is there is a vulnerability in your soul where this stuff rests, and it doesn't just stay there as this small little irritation. Over time, it grows, it mushrooms, it festers, And that resentment or grudge or um, anger is going to turn to bitterness. And it impacts how you think. 
how you treat people, how you feel about them or yourself. And it really takes a very negative turn left unattended. The, the idea of bitterness and resentment. There's a saying, I don't know if you guys heard it, and it may be applied to a few things, but essentially it's like drinking poison and hoping it hurts the other person is resentment and grudges. Holding on to that, again, it feels like it's a, a righteous, safe thing to do, but it's really poisoning us. So we've learned along the way that we've had to protect ourselves, and we've learned how to put on that suit of armor, but we realize the more we wear the armor, the less we actually feel the warmth of community, of God, of our loved ones. So putting on armor, the thing that was your fortress quickly starts to become your prison because I carry so much of this with me. It started as a safety, and now it's my bondage. That's, that's good. I, um, I, I appreciate so much, especially that perspective of what unforgiveness does to you. And I think there's a reason why, and I, can, I can't speak you know, in terms of the, the world of therapy, but I could speak, biblically speaking, there's a reason why I think it's foregrounded so frequently in the scriptures, why again and again forgiveness shows up. It seems like the individual who authored human flourishing, God, understands some of the most um, sinister poisons that we can inject. And unforgiveness, it just goes down so smooth. And I know in my life, there's been you know a lot of little forgivenesses, but there's been a, a couple probably bigger forgivenesses, like capital F forgivenesses that... Um, that the freedom that it brought was legitimate, but a, it, it was not a, like you said, a one time, like, okay, I forgive them. God, God be the glory, brothers and sisters. Let's you now skip off and sing a hymn because I've forgiven them and I don't need to think about that again. It's like, welcome to reality. A small thing, fine. Fender bender, fine. But when you've been betrayed or hurt or whatever it is, that's a bigger thing. And so I wanted to ask a question. Um, because I, well, I wanted to underline that, that I think the hook that kept me from wanting to forgive was the lie that said, if I forgive, I'm letting them off the hook. They're getting away with something and they don't deserve it. Darn it, they don't deserve it. Um, and so that was a big one. But there's this other thing that happens, and, and I know it'll happen to many of you, and I'm sure you've, you both have seen thousands of people. So it's kind of funny talking to you knowing this is like not your first rodeo here. But um, when it comes to forgiveness, how do you see the relationship of feelings and the act of forgiveness? Because I know for myself there were moments where I had the act of forgiveness, even face-to-face saying I forgive you and you are released and then a month later a year later something happens a Christmas comes along or something I have a memory and I go oh I'm so mad at them right like you're just okay that's what it sounds like by the way so I wanted your reflections just on the connection of feelings and forgiveness uh, whatever comes to your thoughts um I think, again, back in that idea of we try and jump too quickly to forgiveness, first, before we're able to forgive, we have to exit the being injured part. So if you're routinely being injured by the person you're trying to forgive, it's not going to work very well. So first, exiting the, the actual trauma, the injury, and then just acknowledging that there is something to be mourned, right? The first step, and I think what you're saying is like, I don't feel like I'm letting off the hook, which means I don't really feel like people understand how badly I've been hurt. So the first thing we have to do is really pour into, and it doesn't feel good, but looking through 
what has been wounded? What is it I'm even bringing to the table of forgiveness before I just try and jump straight to it? And that's uncomfortable. That's a lot of what therapy is, is to sit and kind of process through, where have I been hurt? And that doesn't mean we have to vilify the other person. It means we're acknowledging the wound, right? Intention and impact are two very different things, but we really have to sit in the impact of what has happened and then move towards some healing. And then once we've moved towards healing and the, the exiting of the trauma, then we have some space to understand, well, how did I get into that? What was going on? What can I learn from this? And then the last step is what we all want to jump to, which is the, and I release it to you, God, right? Which is a full, vibrant experience when you've done the first three. But if we try and rush to it, it's going to keep me in that vigilant place where now I'm doing this as this act of being a good Christian, but it's never really sinking in. It's never really bringing healing or letting go. Did I answer the question at all? <laughs> you get a B plus, okay. almost A minus. You're in that on the range. Nah, I give him an A. <laughs> He's good. I just want to add one thing to preface all that Chris said, and that is that we have to decide that we want, that we even want to go there. Um, a lot of times we don't. We're not ready. Revenge and anger can feel really good. Because there's generally when there's been um, an injury, there's hurt. And hurt doesn't feel very powerful. Hurt feels it connects us with our helplessness. And so what we do is we flip to something that feels more powerful. And that's anger and revenge. And so a lot of times we're not ready. We want to hang on to that a little bit longer. And here's the good news, bad news, is that the Lord's going to let you do that. And it's not going to change one ounce of how much he loves you. He knows that you have your process, whatever that is, and he's going to give it over, give it over to you. However, when you're ready to look at it, He's going to be there because he never left you. He's walked you through that balled up fist that says, yeah, not yet. No way. I've never been so angry that I wanted to die. I think that's kind of weird in terms of my <laughs> life experience. But it tells you about the intensity. And he's going to be, my guess is, he's going to be angry for a long time. Not enough. Okay, I have one more thing, and then I'll get back Keep to you. Keep going. Um, I think about it like a closed fist. And if you haven't had a closed fist towards the maker of the universe yet, you either are not being honest with yourself, or it's a not yet for you, because it is going to happen. And when that fist is closed... There is nothing, there is no light of Christ that can get in there. But he's not going to make you open it. And even if all you do is open it one finger at a time, it's enough to let him in. And he will begin to work. And then one by one by one, this is the posture we want to end up with, where it's open to the light of Christ and then he has the option 
to take you through the healing process the way he sees fit. And very often, it looks just like this. But yours and hers will not look the same, even though it looks just like this. And so to compare, well, she wasn't, her hurt was so much worse and I should be better. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> that never works. You're on an individual journey with your maker. And he knows exactly what you need. And he's going to do it beautifully. Just like that. It's, it's so beautiful. Um, the, the opening of the hand. Um, there are people sitting out here. Um, some I know for a fact and others I, I could only make a statistically informed guess that there's something in their past, in their heart, or in their life right now that is maybe an, an, such an ugly wound, something so um, painful that to even think about approaching forgiveness seems almost impossible. And as a preacher... Like, I love when you preach a sermon and people are like, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to make the commitment and change my life. And then, like, Monday happens and Tuesday happens and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and traffic and email and Netflix. And, it, and it's like, oh, yeah, the real world. So I wanted to kind of take all of us up to, the, like, the right at the edge of the first step of this journey of forgiveness. And I want to ask, what, what do you do with, with your folks you're working with, your clients, your, your, the people that you're, you're counseling and caring for, when it comes time to say, all right, what are those first steps? How do you even get there where you're ready to begin the journey of forgiveness that I know folks in this room and myself probably need to hear? So what, how do you help people in that journey? Uh, sure. Chris, I want you to love that microphone. I want get you just to get it. Okay. Get in there. Don't be shy. That's a, it's a very unique answer as far as it's going to be different for everybody, but really it comes to the point when the weight of that armor is so heavy, the fear and the, the risk of taking it off is less overwhelming than keeping it on and continuing to wear it, right? The same when my fist is clenched so tight that I'm unable to grab the hand of the person next to me. I'm unable to be in a community, and I realize this has become septic. This is in such a deep place now that that's the tipping point when most people get to the point when they're ready to say, I think I'm ready to deal with this, when it's become too uncomfortable to not, Right? Um, and one thing I want to point out too, you mentioned like the resentment and the, the grudges being this insidious way that the enemy separates us. If we are designed for this connection, that keeps us separate. And as we're talking about this now, if we have shame, if we can feel like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not doing this right, that's also what I think is the most insidious of the enemy's tools, right? Because what does shame do? It wants to pull you away from community. It wants to put you in this dark corner where it's easier to keep that armor on. It's easier to keep the fist clenched but it's this isolating experience. So when that feels too heavy, too heavy is when normally people want to come in and start dealing with it. I think I want to tell you, I think I want to answer the question differently. <laughs> I love it. I, I want to tell you what has helped me get to the core of what I really needed to be honest with God about. Um, and maybe I'd use this in therapy, but I don't think it's necessary therapeutic tool. Try to pray for them. And I know you've heard pray for your enemies. But I mean, really pray and not listen to your words that you're praying, 
But listen to what happens in your gut when you try to pray. And I guarantee you, if you are not ready, there is going to be profound resistance. And it's going to tell you a lot about where your heart is. And at that point, that's the, the jumping off point to not praying to forgive. But now you have a window into an independent journey with the Lord about your own resistance. And very often in that process, there is some repentance that has to happen in me before forgiveness can ever begin to happen. There's got to be a piece that says, you know, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And, but it's hard sometimes to get to it because we feel so justified. And so this little tool allows your own heart to open up to you so that you can talk to the Lord about what really is going on with you. And that might help you in the journey because if that knot is still in here, you can pray all day long about forgiving and it's, it's just not going to happen yet because you this inside you is not resolved and that helps get in touch with that helps you get helps me get in touch with what this is so then i can really have an honest conversation with my maker that was, yeah no absolutely and it, and it um and i like i love it because it's also super practical and startable um i want the last thing i want to just um you mentioned something at the last service that I thought was really powerful that is worthy of repeating here. And it has to do with forgiving ourselves. And I just love for you two to take a, a moment and just kind of reflect for us on that, um, that form of forgiveness. Okay. Um, in my experience with people, that's generally been the hardest forgiving to do and I don't exactly know why but that guilt that we carry when we've done something that has hurt or been wrong for any reason is is um, justified rationalized I think that's we rationalize it and as because it should be there and Forgiving ourselves is probably part of the journey in this whole process of unforgiveness. Closing doctors. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I think forgiving ourselves is one of the most vulnerable things as well because, again, that it's, we're releasing the fact that we have some kind of control. And to forgive yourself and be vulnerable again, to be open again, is a really scary process and one that we have to do again and again. Um, and I, I, I'll share the quick metaphor again. But... It's something that we're probably going to have to repeat. This is not a one and done and you're, oh, phew, check that one off my list. This may be back. The same forgiveness you have to experience for yourself or for somebody else. And so I use a little story. A little girl playing soccer in the front yard and the ball runs into the street around a blind corner and she runs out to get it and the car hits her. Right now and takes out her legs and now this sweet little girl with her future in front of her has been limited to a wheelchair. And that's going to take a lot of work to heal from. Right? She's not able to just forgive all, right off the bat, but she's going to heal. And because God designed us so wonderfully, 
we actually find our way back to baseline of happiness. Even after something horrible like that, we find our way back to like, if you're doing a self-report at a similar level of enjoyment of life as before an accident like that, right? So she's done the healing and then she's getting through high school and she gets asked to the senior prom and realizes, I'm not gonna get to dance at my senior prom. What's wrong, like I thought I dealt with this when I was five, I made sense of it, I was okay, but now I'm angry again, I'm hurting again, I feel less than again. So she's gonna have to go through that same process of what was the wound? What happened to me? How do I understand this? How do I then forgive and release? And she does because she makes it through and she did before and she has a great time, lots of good pictures. Then down the road, she gets married, she gets proposed to and she's thinking like, I can't wait to get married and then realizes, I'm not gonna get to walk down the aisle. I'm not gonna have the long train dragging behind me in the way I always envisioned it. So she has to acknowledge the wound again. She has to see where the weight of this wears, where it sits, release it, have a wonderful, amazing wedding and play it out. Same thing goes down. You can just keep going down life events one after another. All of a sudden her daughters wanna play soccer and she wants to be the coach and I can't be their coach because of what happened to me 35 years ago. You're gonna be angry, you're gonna be hurt, you're gonna be confused again. So rejecting the shame of you didn't do it wrong if you come back to the same thing, mm, right? You're just yeah. doing it again from a different angle. God is bringing healing from different places of life as you get to them, so. Well, I just can't thank you enough and um, I thank you for the work you're doing and I just wanna close, uh, we're transitioning in a second here, but for all of us, some of you need to get your butts into therapy. You just need to swallow your pride and get your butt into therapy, okay? You just need to. Um, I have benefited massively from it and in Christian circles for some weird reason I don't understand there's, always, there's been a little stigma to it. A little like, well, that's for those people. But we have God's word, and that's all we need. And like, yeah, God's word's amazing. And it's so true. But sometimes you need to humble yourself, have a trained listener, someone that's seen thousands of people, and I would suggest who loves God like these two, to walk you through some hard things. So some of you, this is your moment of like, get your butt into therapy and stop being prideful. And for others, um, you just maybe this walked you up to a line, you could start walking. But I want to say thank you to both. Can we just give a huge hand for these two? Thank you so much. And um, we're going to close off and transition uh, to communion differently. We're actually, I want to play, we're going to play a clip for you of Corey Ten Boom. One of my great heroes is Corrie Ten Boom. She's a Dutch Christian who hid Jews during the war. She was caught and Corrie and her sister and her father went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her father and her sister Betsy died there. She's an amazing woman, and after the war, she went and spoke to others about forgiveness. She was speaking in a church in Germany one time, and at the end of her talk, she recognized the man coming up to her, and she could see it was one of the most cruel guards from Ravensbrück. She pictured him as he was then, and as he came up to her, he said, I was a guard at Ravensbrück. He didn't recognize her, but she knew, she recognized him. She could see him. And she remembered walking naked past him. She said she felt so cold and so angry. He said, I've become a Christian now. I know I did some very cruel things, but I've received God's forgiveness for the cruelties I've done. And I asked God's grace for an opportunity to ask one of my very victims for forgiveness. Fraulein Ten Boom, Want you were forgiven. forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. 
But I was not able. I could not. I could only hate him. And then I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who has given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. One of my great heroes is Corrie ten Boom. She's a Dutch Christian who hid Jews during the war. She was caught and Corrie and her sister and her father went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And um, that'll be our close tonight, today. Unless there's something else I don't know about, then do that thing, whoever planned it.